It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Thursday, September 24th, 2009. Yeah, I, I braved the rain today here in Indiana to uh, head out to the Westboro Baptist protest uh, at Central High School here in Indianapolis. Got audio highlights on today's uh, program. First hour, probably second half of the first hour, so you don't want to miss it. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We have no shortage of bizarre things being said about God and uh, in spiritual things in general that just don't jive with uh, God's Word. And uh, God does not, by the way, uh, give creativity points on the last day. Just want to let you know that. <laughs> you know, you, know you, you think back to school, you know, if you if you were in a creative writing class or you were taking an art class, creativity was a bonus. It was something that you know, if you really truly had creativity, uh people would think that you were gifted, that you had an amazing ability. In theology, creativity is doo-doo. You do no creativity points whatsoever. It's all about fidelity. That's right. Faithfulness to what God's word says. And if somebody in a stroke of creative genius says something that contradicts God's word, uh, they're wrong. I don't care how creative it is. Um, fidelity is the rule of the day when it comes to God's word. Why? Because the Bible is literally, you can say it's the mind of God. Okay. And in there, we have God revealing things about himself to us in ways that we can comprehend and understand. Does that mean that we know everything about God? Not even close. You know, we talk about tip of the iceberg kind of stuff. We, I mean, we, we know so little about God. And I have no problem saying that, we, that God is in many ways beyond our comprehension. That being said, however, I can also say yet... God has revealed much about himself to us that we can and that we can understand and we can comprehend. I mean, otherwise, why did he reveal it about himself if he didn't think that we can understand it? What's the point in having a book that's a revelation about God and what he's done for us and who he is and and the demands he makes upon us and also the good news that he's rescued us and redeemed us by Christ's vicarious death on the cross for our sins? What's the point in having a book that tells us all of this stuff about God if you're going to turn around and in a postmodern way say, oh, it's arrogant of you to say that you can know anything with certainty about God, that's just poppycock. Uh, <laughs> seriously, you can't, you know, that's just ridiculous. It, it denies what God has revealed about himself. So what God has revealed, we can know. And if what you're saying about God contradicts what God has revealed about himself, I'm sorry, you're wrong. That means you need to repent because those ideas that you hold on to that are contrary to what God's word reveals, oh, that's nothing but just idolatry. You, you've invented your own God or your own theology. And um, like I said, creativity counts for doo-doo on the last day. It's fidelity that we're called to, to faithfully n learn and know 
what sound doctrine is and to faithfully pass that on to the next generation and not mess it up. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, uh, anyway, the Christian uh, church right now, a dangerous place to be at times. All right, for today's program, uh, thank you for tuning in again, by the way. Uh, always, I'm very happy uh, that uh, we even have an audience. <laughs> I work so hard to drive people away by warning them that, you know, listening to this program could cause you to become dissatisfied with your church, your Bible college. It could even get you in trouble. I mean, it's these ideas that I am putting out here on fighting for the faith, they're dangerous. They could get you killed. And I'm not saying that glibly. I really, truly mean that. If you're going to proclaim the truth of God and you're going to stand by it and you're going to be bold enough to tell people the truth about God, uh, sometimes that could result in violent reactions. Now, in the United States, for the most part, that's not the case. And, you know, you're, no one's going to get shot for preaching the gospel. However, in other countries... Absolutely true. It can happen in the U.S. And it can happen in the Great Britain of all places. But uh, again, you know, keep in mind that a, a servant is not greater than his master. And we are not greater than our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the way they thanked him for what he did is, uh, well, they nailed him to a cross. So keep in mind, it, being a Christian is dangerous business. The, in fact, if you're looking for a program that's going to give you three easy tips for how you can apply some biblical principle in order for you to have your best life now, you're really listening to the wrong program. Um, we don't preach that heresy. We preach uh, the one, the dangerous one that could get you killed. That's not the heresy, but we preach the truth, and the truth can get you killed. All right, today's program got a little, a couple of news stories I want to go over. Um, one regarding the ELCA. Um, the uh, Lutheran bishop, the bishop in charge of the ELCA, is warning about uh, those groups who are threatening to withhold funds as a result of their recent vote um, on homosexuality. We're going to be uh, catching up with that because uh, it's a very interesting story. We also have a follow-up news story regarding that Chinese church that was razed to the ground by that mob of 400 people in uh, Fushan City uh, in China. And apparently uh, Chinese officials have secretly offered to pay uh, pay for the destroyed megachurch, you know, to make basically make reparations. So there's some positive th uh, news there. And also ABC tonight is going to be starting a, a new series on the Ten Commandments. I got to set the TiVo for this one. Don't want to miss it. Um, and uh, in fact, in preparation for this, I've actually done a Ten Commandments thing online and um, was very, very disappointed with the results. We'll talk about that uh, in a minute. And uh, and and uh, and then toward the end of the first hour today, I was down at a protest. Uh, well, man, it was like a circus out there. Um, Westboro Baptist Church sent five of their uh, of their peoples, uh, the Westboro peeps to uh, protest with their God hates fags and all that kind of stuff. Uh, signs they were protesting in front of Central High School in Indianapolis. And which is really, it's about 15 miles away from uh, our studios here for Pirate Christian Radio. So I got into the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile uh, uh, SUV and went down and uh, I interviewed uh, two of the members of Westboro Baptist Church who were there protesting. And uh, boy, they were greatly outnumbered, that's for sure. 
and uh, theologically it had a very a couple of very interesting um, exchanges with the Westboro folks. And uh, what you're going to hear, we'll play audio highlights of that uh, after the first break. What you're going to hear is both saddening, it, it's absolutely tragic, um, and, and eye-opening at the same time. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that, as uh, you'll hear audio highlights of me interviewing two members of Westboro Baptist Church and uh, what that all, <clears throat> how that all played out. And uh, with that in mind, we'll dive into our program proper. <clears throat> It's time for the news. From the Christian Post, the headline reads, ELCA head urges clergy to restrain divisive activities. <laughs> divisive, is it divisive or divisive? Is that like tomato or tomato? You know, it might be a matter of uh, whether or not you're, uh, you're speaking the Queen's English or, um, uh, or well, uh, Daniel Boone's. <laughs> All right, uh, Joshua Goldberg is a, is the reporter here from the Christian Post. The story reads: the head of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, aka the ELCA, which I am not affiliated with, uh, the <laughs> I am a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which, by the way, is not as pure as the wind-driven snow. Just so, you, just so, if you think that somehow I'm thinking that my synod is greater, no. When we look at what happened with the ELCA. Uh, many of us, the very first response we had was to get on our knees and beg for mercy from God and, uh, and pray fervently that, uh, God not judge us in such a way as to cause us to embrace such rank, rank heresy and to be so scornful of the clear teachings of the word of God. Uh, that's, that's more or less my attitude at this point. Uh, but we read, um, the head of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is urging leaders within the denomination to refrain from making decisions that may separate members from one another in the aftermath of the contentious outcomes of last month's churchwide assembly. Now, by the way, there's a whole group of, of people out there called the Lutheran Corps, and they are meeting uh, in, uh, north, in, in the northeast uh, quadrant of uh, Indianapolis, uh, starting tomorrow evening, in fact, I've petitioned to see if I can get a press pass to attend this event. And um, they are basically, you know, at this point, they are well on their way to openly, you know, to basically setting up a completely different uh, Lutheran denomination, if you would, or a Lutheran confession. And, uh, you know, they said they had 1,200 people that are going to be attending uh, this event. And so I'm still going through the press pass process. <clears throat> nice alliteration, by the way. Um, but I don't, no guarantee that I'm going to be able to go. But uh, you know, I'm I'm doing what I can to see if I can't uh, you know attend and, and at least be a, an observer from the media point of view. And being that I'm a Lutheran, I you know, I understand some of the inside baseball as far as the theology is concerned. So, so the the, the reality is is that the Lutheran core is there at this point. It's not a threat. They're planning on leaving the ELCA, ELCA, and in the meantime, they're advising their people not to give any money that would go to the uh, to the centralized leadership of the ELCA. And that's what the bishop here, uh, uh, Bishop Mark Hansen, is um, reacting to. Uh, the ELCA, ELCA presiding bishop, Mark S. Hansen, is urging them instead to engage... Uh, one another with honesty and respect in renewed and deepening theological conversation informed by an evangelical missional imagination. What? 
<laughs> what does that mean? Holy cow. That... <laughs> Okay, hang on. Listen, I am not a PhD in theology. However, I have studied theology and do have uh, have a degree in religious studies and biblical languages. And I and, and and theology happens to be the love of my life as far as, you know, the thing I've been studying over the years. Um actually Jesus Christ is the love of my life and I do really really enjoy theology, but I have no idea what that sentence means. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on a second here. Um, let me read this again. Uh, ELCA presiding bishop Mark Hansen is urging them to instead to, quote, this is a quote, this is a direct quote, engage one another with honesty and respect in renewed and deepened theological conversation informed by an evangelical missional imagination. What is a missional imagination? I, I I kid you not. I am hearing Charlie Brown's school teacher. That's all. I'm hearing words, but I'm not understanding any of it. <clears throat> we continue. Quote: My heart aches as I listen to the pain and distress of those who feel confused or even abandoned by others. Well, actually, um, uh, Mark, you guys abandon the clear teaching of the Word of God. So uh, those people who are beholden to God's word. Um, it's not that you've abandoned them. You've abandoned God's word and they can't join you in that abandonment. You, you see, if we're going to talk about abandonment, I mean, you understand you're the one who's abandoned the clear teaching of God's word. Okay, let's so. All right. So my heart aches as I listen to the pain and distress of those who feel confused or even abandoned by others, not only in the decisions of the church-wide assembly, but also in the decisions that are being made in congregations by individuals. The Lutheran head wrote in a letter Wednesday to leaders within the denomination. Last month, during the triennial gathering of the ELCA's chief legislative body, delegates voted um, four, 559 to 451 to approve a resolution allowing gays and lesbians and lifelong monogamous same-gender relationships to be ordained. Uh, in other words, uh, they voted to ordain unrepentant homosexuals. It's just that simple. <sighs> anyway, delegates also adopted a new social statement on human sexuality with with exactly the number of votes, uh, 676 or two-thirds needed to pass it. The statement, which emphasizes two principles, trust and bound conscience. Bound con uh, what's your conscience bound to? Um, you talk about trust and bound conscience, but what's it bound to? Is it bound to some ethereal concept of... Of, uh, of, of love that's uh, actually in contradiction to what God has revealed about how he loves us in Scripture? Yeah, or is it actually bound to the Scriptures? Uh, it's obviously it's not bound to the Scriptures because the Bible couldn't be clearer that homosexuality is a sin and that Christians are to call homosexuals as well as heterosexual sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. All right, so here we Okay, so this the statement which emphasizes two principles, trust and bound conscience, addresses a spectrum of topics relevant to human sexuality, including social structures, cohabitation, sexual exploitation, abuse, and homosexuality. Since the gathering, the largest Lutheran body in America has sparked a flurry of remarks 
from across denominational lines, including criticisms from other U.S. Lutheran bodies and the United Methodist Church, which last year approved a uh, full communion with the ELCA. Yet remember the United Methodist Church, which is no conservative um, uh, denomination by any stretch of the imagination, is not rushing to uh, have ELCA pastors that are openly homosexual um, taking over their pulpits. Um, Quote, I'm disappointed that some are encouraging congregations and members to take actions that will diminish our capacity for ministry, Hansen stated. Uh, uh, Mark, listen, Uh, your concern is really in the wrong place. Let me read this statement again by you. You said, this is Mark Hansen, Bishop of the uh, ELCA, saying he's disappointed. I am disappointed that some are encouraging congregations and members to take actions that will diminish our capacity for ministry. Uh, Mark, the blame for that rests squarely on your shoulders. You voted against God's clear teachings and clear word regarding the sin of homosexuality and those whose consciences are bound to the clear teachings of the word of God uh, cannot remain in fellowship with you because you've broken fellowship with God. And so uh, you say you're disappointed with those people who are doing the right thing and saying that it's going to diminish your capacity for ministry. Well, you've already diminished that yourself by not proclaiming the truth about what God's word teaches. <clears throat> to the leaders of those flocks, Hansen asked for the bearing one another's burdens in continued conversation. There's nothing to discuss. You guys voted against God's word. You're heretics at this point. There's no uh, light has no fellowship with darkness. The job of Christians is to disassociate with you, treat you as unbelievers, and then turn around and call you to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Couldn't be clearer in the Bible, by the way. Okay, let's see here. So bearing one another's burdens in continual con- in continued conversation, like that's going to do anything, and the long-suffering patience that frees us to remain together in mission. You guys can't... You, how could you remain together in... in listen, uh, Mark, listen. If I were in the ELCA, and I'm not, but uh, if for whatever reason I was in a confessional congregation in the ELCA, and yes, there are confessional Lutheran congregations in the EL, in the ELCA... Um, I couldn't remain uh, connected to you because we wouldn't share the same mission. Uh, the way I understand it is, is the gospel, the message, uh, the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name is the mission. You guys are on a different mission. The mission that Mark Hansen's branch of the ELCA is on is uh, the mission of basically telling unrepentant homosexuals that God is basically, he doesn't care. He's so unconditional in his love, you can just sin your little heart out. And and who cares what's been written in God's word? Um, all that's called upon is for you to love God, and and see he and see he doesn't care what you do. See that's not the God of the Bible, and uh, that's not the mission that the church is on. And so those who actually understand what the biblical mission of the church is can't remain connected to you, Mark. It's real simple. This falls on your shoulders, not theirs. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing biblically. Okay, let's see here. Um, quote, our attentive listening to one another and patient waiting for the Spirit's work in these conversations will be a powerful witness. <laughs> no, 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 no. What will be a powerful witness is when they turn around and say that you guys are are 
absolutely apostatizing, and you need to repent of your heresies and uh, receive the forgiveness of sins. That will be a powerful witness. A- engaging in endless conversations that go nowhere and get nothing done, despite the fact that you guys have completely gone off the rails biblically, is not going to accomplish anything and will only witness further uh, to the world just how completely lost you guys are. <clears throat> During his opening sermon, an oral report to the churchwide assembly last month in Minneapolis, Hansen asked, what shall our witness, what, what shall be our witness? What story shall we tell? I know, you're, you know, you should tell the one in the Bible about Jesus' death on the cross for sins, you know, call people to repentance. Do I sound like I'm just beating the same drum there? I kind of beat that one drum every single program. Anyway, we continue. In his letter Wednesday, the presiding bishop said he believes those questions remain central to ELCA and expressed his hope that ongoing conversations will be marked by the signs of a church that lives in faith, hope, and love. These are completely empty words and completely empty platitudes, Mark. You're not loving anybody because you've abandoned God's word and you're not even proclaiming the truth to them. You're lying to them. Therefore, you're actually sending them to hell. Don't tell me that you love sinners when your gospel sends them to hell. He concluded by recalling the reflection he gave at the end of last month's assembly. Quote, we finally meet one another, not in our agreements or disagreements, but at the foot of the cross where God is faithful, where Christ is present with us, and where, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are one in Christ, Hansen had stated. You know, by the way, um, taking the the Lord's name in vain, you know, many, uh, listen, so many people out there think that taking the Lord's name in vain is is equivalent to uh, some valley girl going, oh my God, you know, but that's, um, that, that is part of it, but that's not really... Uh, the gist of it. Taking the Lord's name in vain really is when you ascribe things to God that God did not say. Um, when you teach false doctrine, when you make a buck off of something that is not true uh, biblically, uh, when you pull the wool over people's eyes and use God's name to uh, to basically uh, keep that wool from being lifted up and people knowing the truth because you're acting as if you're part of God. Listen, talking about sitting at the foot of the cross at this point, this is blatantly taking God's name in vain. Don't sit there, Mark, and tell us about sitting at the foot of the cross when it is so patently obvious you don't even know what that means. You have completely bought, basically you have bought into and are promoting a heresy. That homosexuality is not a sin. So don't tell me about sitting at the foot of the cross. You don't even know what that means. To sit at the foot of the cross, which, by the way, we're not called as Christians to, quote, sit at the foot of the cross. We're called to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. The, the, The Christian life is one of continual daily repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We're not called to sit there and with our daisies and our, and our, and our, um, hippie costumes, Preaching, all you need is love. Not, na, 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 na. All you need is love. No, that's, that's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is the good news that Christ died on the cross for our sins and, he, and the calling of sinners to repentance, a change of mind from wickedness that they think is okay to understanding how wretched and sinful they are in light of God's holy and righteous demands upon our life, 
and receiving the forgiveness of sins from Jesus for our flagrant rebellion against him and his word. I'm sorry, but um, there's Lutherans who still hold to the Lutheran confessions and their witness to sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus. Those congregations who still understand that God's word is authoritative, they have no communion with you. And speaking empty platitudes about sitting at the foot of the cross is nothing but blasphemy. Blasphemy designed to put a pious face on blatant, sinful rebellion against God and his word. We continue. And in this conviction, he added Wednesday that, quote, that sustains me in my leadership and gives me confident hope. With 4.7 million members, the the ELCA is the largest Lutheran uh, church body in the United States and the fourth largest Protestant body. By the way, there was a follow-up. There was a different story here um, from uh, onenewsnow.com. Lutheran bishop warns about withholding donations. Chicago, the presiding bishop, that would be Mark Hansen, of the nation's largest Lutheran denomination, warns that withholding financial support to protest the recent gay clergy would be devastating to the church. It should be. I hope it completely decimates you guys. Um, And don't act like you weren't warned by God. Remember, it was God who sent that tornado uh, that toppled the cross across the street. Uh, Bishop Mark Hansen lays out his concerns in a letter Wednesday to leaders of the 4.7 million member Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The ELCA voted last month to allow gay and lesbians in committed relationships, basically unrepentant homosexuals, uh, to serve as clergy, dropping a requirement that the clergy remain celibate. Hansen's letter comes on the eve of a meeting in suburban Indianapolis of conservative ELCA uh, group uh, group Lutheran uh, core, which has urged supporters to direct funding away from the national church because of the vote. Yeah, I hope I hope they not only do that. I hope they abs- end, end up leaving the ELCA. All right, we are up on our first break, and um, when we come back, let's take a look at what I still have left to cover here. Got uh, news about the uh, Chinese officials. Uh, the uh, Chinese officials have secretly offered to pay for the destroyed megachurch there in Fushan City. So this is some positive news coming out of that terrible uh, incident there. And then uh, ABC tonight is going to be probing uh, something on the Ten Commandments. I I did a little pre-work on this, and uh, I wasn't very happy about it. And uh, and then also we got our audio from uh, my interviewing of a couple of people from Westboro Baptist Church who were here in Indianapolis protesting a school play. So we're going to be uh, playing that uh, at the uh, after the break. So you definitely do not want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. My name is Chris Rosebro. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Pitching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> ha 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 ha. 
It's... Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Need to warn, uh, I'm not warning you, need to remind you all, uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. This is a partnership that we are on together here. And here's how the partnership works. I, on a daily basis, continue to put out a quality program that compares what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, pull no punches, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all sinners, including myself and you, on a daily, daily basis here at Fighting for the Faith. And you grow in your understanding of biblical doctrine, sound biblical discernment, and 
you partner with us by uh, financially supporting it, us so that we can continue to do the job. It's, it's this wonderful symbiotic relationship, if you would. I mean, what's the point of having a teacher if there's no students? You, you, see, this, you see how this works? So um, it, basically, you can support us a couple of ways. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And while you're there, click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Yeah, that's right. It's real simple. And then you'll be redirected to a page that is secure where you can enter your financial information and uh, and, and securely uh, send along a contribution to help us uh, pay our monthly expenses so we can continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Or you can make your check payable to fightingforthefaith.com and send it along to Post Office Box 508. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here in the program, i, I got to tell you, going out to that uh, Westboro protest um, <laughs> kind of threw me off a little bit, but it was well worth it. Got some good audio. All right, uh, ABC, uh, ABC to probe the Ten Commandments in new series. This is a, uh, that's the headline. This is a story from the Christian Post by Kevin P. Donovan. ABC will be launching a new special series Thursday that will examine how the Ten Commandments are being applied in today's world. Starting with Thou Shalt Not Commit Adultery. Wait, that's not first on the list. Uh, ABC News Nightline program will tackle each commandment during its Ten Commandments series, looking at what they mean and how they applied to life in the 21st century. Why do I get the feeling that when they're done with this, they're going to be the Ten Suggestions? Thursday's program, which was taped last week at the Fellowship Church in Dallas, pits two Christian ministers um, against two advocates of adultery in the same format as uh, Nightline's face-off. Are there there really pro-adultery advocates out there nowadays? Oh, man. Uh, The question at hand is, were we born to cheat? (laughs) Hey, you know what? L- listen, okay. This this uh, this particular uh, argument was bound to happen. Why? Because well, you got people out there basically saying there's a gay gene. You know, if you are homosexual, that's something that you are by nature. God made you that way because apparently there's some genetic disposition uh, for people to be homosexual and and uh, attracted to people of the same gender. Well, what if there's a cheating gene? Um, I mean. Are, who are we to condemn people who have the cheating gene, right? I mean, don't you understand? They're just doing what God made them to do. Uh, see, there's the problem, though. Um, how do you defeat this? It's real simple. Um, I don't care if they find a gay gene or a cheating gene or whatever. Um, that would all come about as a result of the fall, okay? Mankind rebelling against God, falling into sin. By nature, we are all born sinful and rebellious, and conceived in sin, and we are at war with God by nature. So if even if they found a gay gene or a, a cheating gene, a cheating gene, that wouldn't excuse the sin at all. Because this, this sinful nature that we have is a result of man's rebellion against God. It's a result of the fall. We still are to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. By the way... Um, I'll end up TiVoing this, just so you know. And if there's anything worth playing, there probably there probably will be on the on the bad side. I don't have a lot of hope here, uh, Fellowship Church in Dallas. Just because uh, here's the deal: 
it's not the Christian church is not to go out and just simply proclaim monogamy. That's God's standard, and that's what we're here to proclaim. <laughs> no, we are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So when you proclaim monogamy, you basically say, listen, God has made it perfectly clear according to his holy requirements that he, by right as our God, can place upon us that, uh, that no sexual immorality is allowed, and sexual immorality includes the sin of adultery. That's right. If you are to any any sexual relations with anybody outside of a male female marriage is sin. And those of you listening to the sound of my voice who are guilty of committing this sin, God calls you to repent and the good news is he's offering you full forgiveness and pardon for your sin based on Christ's death on the cross. So repent of your wickedness and trust this good news. That's what we're supposed to do. So I don't really consider it to be just, I don't really think it's very productive to just be out there saying, hey, we're here to be advocates for um, for uh, lifelong marriage. Okay, yes, that's important, but uh, here's the deal. Um, Jesus' definition of adultery uh, isn't just doing the deed. It's... Um, it also includes lusting in the heart. So, um, in other words, um, probably 100% of all human beings are um, guilty of committing the sin of adultery then. So, um, yeah, we've got to come to grips with that and anyway. So let me let me see what we got here. Quote, infidelity can save your marriage, <laughs> argued. AshleyMadison.com founder Noel Noel Bitterma, whose website has offered a way for married men and women to pursue affairs. You've got to be kidding me. Unbelievable. It's better to have an affair than to get divorced, he maintained during a taping for Thursday's program. <sighs> he needs to be called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, too. Anyway, so we'll we'll keep you posted. But like I said earlier today, um, I actually got onto the ABC News website, and they have a Ten Commandments survey. Are you a saint or a sinner? I answer the questions. First of all, you have to identify the Ten Commandments. I did, and then uh, they they asked you how you stand up, and and based on my honest answers, as best as I could answer them, because uh, the the real answer I was looking for wasn't really one of the options. But uh, the quiz results it said that I was an Earth angel basically saying that I'm in the murky middle, while not quite a celestial being, it says that I'm that I'm trying, and that's the most important part. What a bunch of garbage. What a bunch of... That's ridiculous. I'm not an earth angel, okay? And saying I'm in the murky middle, but that's okay, and the only thing that matters is that I'm trying, is absolute, just satanic lies. No, the purpose of the law is to show us our sin, and there's and God doesn't grave grade on a curve. And I think this thing itself. In fact, I'm going to take a screenshot of it, and I'll twit pick this out there uh, later today, and um, you know, so that you can you, you all can see it. And it, it's just it's a complete lie. No, God doesn't grade on a curve, and, that, and the important thing is not that I'm trying. Uh, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. You're a sinner. You. Need a savior. 
All right, real quick, let me uh, give you that update on that Chinese story. Uh, we we uh, covered this a couple of days ago. We read, under pressure from the central government, local Chinese officials from Fushan City secretly offered to pay $219,000 in damages to the megachurch it leveled last week. On Saturday night, security officials cornered six Fushan leaders and brought them to a secret meeting place to negotiate with 20 government officials, according to China Aid Association. The security officials expressed a desire to make amends with the church leaders after the central government placed pressure on them. The central government reported, reportedly fears that if the incident is made widely known, then it will mar the 60th anniversary celebrations of, of the National Day on October 1st. A little late for that. It's kind of an international story. Anyway, Fushan church leaders, though still angered by the destruction of 17 buildings on the compound, was reportedly willing to cooperate. They conveyed concern about fellow church members who were still hospitalized from the attack and requested 1.5 million yen to cover the damages. Negotiations continued into the, into the night, and at one point, an officer reportedly shouted, but the church building itself was illegal. The pastor's wife responded, even if it was an illegal church, didn't it, have to, it, it didn't have to be violent. The officer reportedly had no response. In China, all churches are mandated to register with a government-run Protestant or Catholic church body that oversees their operations. However, tens of thousands of Christians in China worship in unregistered churches because they oppose the idea of the government monitoring church activities. So there you have it. if there's any more news regarding the story, we will let you know. All right, now with that, now I, I, I admit I haven't told you all, today's uh, sermon review in hour number two is going to be from Mars Hill. That's Rob Bell's church, but it's not Rob Bell who's uh, the one preaching it. It's a Catholic priest. Yeah, that's right. Our sermon review is um, is going to be a, a, the, the, a Father Robert Sirico, um, uh of uh, Act. Act Acton.org of the Acton Institute um, preached from the pulpit at Mars Hill um, this past week, and we're going to be listening to his uh, sermon. So you definitely do not want to miss that. Uh, rather interesting that a Catholic priest is preaching at a supposedly Protestant uh, church body. But uh, anyway, that's beside the point. Now, as promised earlier today, I was out uh, out and about, at, and I traveled to uh, Central High School um, in Indianapolis uh, and outside of the uh, outside of the high school five members of uh, Westboro Baptist Church were there with their inflammatory signs basically protesting the fact that uh, that particular high school was going to be putting on a school play that somehow glorified or uh, made homosexuality okay so that's why they were there, and uh, the reason I was there uh, was basically uh, to, in a sense, follow up with my uh, conversation with Shirley Phelps Roper from a couple of months ago, and uh, basically use law and gospel on them to kind of show the problems that they have in their theology. This, I'll play for you, I interviewed two of the members of Westboro Baptist Church, I do not have their names, by the way, um, and, um, but this this is going to be very, very eye-opening um, and going to show you just the complete, complete hopelessness of their theology. I think these folks are are swept up in a cult after, especially after listening to this. So here we go. Here is my uh, interview with two members of Westboro Baptist Church outside of Central High School in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, this afternoon. 
Excuse me, I'm with Pirate Christian Radio. Want to know what you guys are protesting here today? Uh, the promotion of uh, sodomy by the local high school. Okay, what's uh, what, what's the truth that the, the guys are supposedly proclaiming? Is that God hates people? The same God that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is going to destroy this nation. Okay, He's and... still alive. Sodomy is still against God's law. Right. Now, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments yourself, right? Sure. Okay. You should not have another God, no graven images, love your neighbor as yourself, that kind of stuff. No no adultery, no stealing. How do you stack up against the Ten Commandments? Are you a sinner? Of course I am. Then why are you out here condemning other people's sins as a sinner? Was Paul a sinner? Of course he was. Well, why was he out preaching and condemning people from all across the Mediterranean? You think that Paul was only preaching condemnation? Of course he was. And love for those that, that Christ died for. Okay, got to pause there. Notice I'm doing a long gospel with him, trying to figure out where the gospel comes into play. And you know, he, I asked him if uh, Paul was only preaching condemnation, and he, he he said, "Of course he was." And they thought about it and said, "Well, and love to those whom Christ died for." Now listen carefully to the next step here in this interview. Okay, well, do you know which of these people Christ died for across the street? Now, across the street at this protest, there was a whole group of people out there protesting Westboro Baptist. And i got to tell you, it was a substantial group. It was, they, there had to be hundreds of them and just a handful of the Westboro Baptist folks. It says in the book of Revelation, there's not going to be any dogs in heaven. Do you know what dogs are? We'll say pagans, unbelievers. Do you know what dogs are? No, sure. no, it's the Bible metaphor for, for homosexuals. Okay. Catamites, sodomites. None of them are in heaven. So Christ anybody didn't die. Anybody, any, anybody who commits the sin of sodomy, they all go to hell. Or supports it. Or supports it. It says that in Romans 1. Either does it or supports it. Well, look, at all, look at all this. You've got this nation now to the point where their high schools are coming out in groves. Right. Supporting, supporting, now listen to me, supporting the filthiest conduct known to the human race. Conduct that destroys the soul and the body. All right. Now, you're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says that uh, idolaters, adulterers, and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? All right. Okay, but in that same verse, it says, so were some of you. Right. Isn't, isn't the message of Christianity repentance and there the forgiveness of sins? There you go. And the forgiveness of sins. Repentance. And They're proud. But what about They're the forgiveness they of call sins? It, they call it gay pride, my friend. Gay pride. You can't be proud of something and be repentant. I agree. They're, they're all unbelievers and they're there pagans. You there you go. But don't you have anything to offer them sure by way do. of the forgiveness sure of sins? What, what we've got to offer them is you stop what you're doing now and there may be some hope. Oh, man. Stop what you're doing now, and there may be some hope. Breathtaking. Terrible. Wow. This is not good news at all. Probably not, but there may be. But you say you're a sinner, so you don't stop what you're doing. Is there any hope for you? How do you know God isn't angry at you? Okay, now listen carefully to his answer. This is, yeah, I go back and forth with him a little bit, but wow. Preaching a sin? A sin? Huh? You call him preaching the sin? You're only preaching repentance. You're not preaching the forgiveness of sins. There's no hope that you're offering. That's you're only preaching hate. Yes, God hates hey, sin. Hey, hey, hey. I'm preaching God's hate. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, I, I, that, oh, that makes it better. He's only preaching God's hate. <sighs>
where is the gospel here? Um, listen carefully. See if if the gospel even is applied to him. You're gonna. Oh, this is tragic. You, you go, but did you, you say you're from a Christian pirate Christian you, radio? You go. You go do a Google check or a word check on the Bible and and God's wrath, God's anger, God's fury, yes. God's hate yep. is talked about at least three times as much in the Bible as God's love. His I, love is confined to those. It says. Those that God the Father gave me, his sheep. And that's the only love, that's the only people that he loves, and they're few. They're called a remnant. They're called, uh... Oh, boy. You know what? Again, listen, I think the scripture is clear. Christ dies for the sins of the world. Even in Second Peter, we hear about the, the, rebellion, the, the rebels and the apostates uh, in the last days. It says that Christ bought them, and yet they rebel against Christ. It's so clear in scripture that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think this... I do not think the Bible teaches limited atonement, and that's one of the reasons why I have no problem proclaiming forgiveness of sins to everybody. The thing is, is that not all repent, and I don't know why, but that's a different story. They're called a flock, which is a small, uh-huh. small group. Right. A small percentage of the human race is, is subject to God's love or that he died for. So how do you know you're part of that small segment? Well, I hope I am. Okay, did you hear that? So he talks about how small the remnant is, and I ask him, well, how do you know you're part of it? And he, all he could say was, well, I uh, hope I am. Hmm. You hope? Of course I do. You don't know for sure? Well, of course not. You don't know if Christ I, died for I you? I got evidence of it. What, what, what's of your it? evidence? Uh, that, I, that the blessings that he's given me and that he's got me out on the path preaching his truth. There you go. That's not very good evidence. Well, you, you, what evidence you got? Don't talk to me about evidence. I'm a, I've been a lawyer for over 30 years. I think I know what kind of evidence it takes to prove something. Okay. Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's pretty good evidence. Rose again from the dead. Are you, are I've been you, baptized, you're, buried you're, in Christ, you're, you're, raised in Christ. Oh, that's all. You know what? That, that's pithy, meaningless language in these last days. Okay. Yeah, notice he he the, he doesn't even know for sure. He hopes that he's part of that remnant, but he doesn't even know for sure. And his evidence is pretty flimsy and really doesn't provide any certainty whatsoever. Yet scripture says faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we cannot see. If the certainty lies within me and my moral improvement or something I have to do, there is no certainty. But the Christian certainty lies outside of us. It lies outside of us, which is another reason why I think baptism is so important, at least understanding it biblically, that there are true things offered for to Christians in baptism, that we are buried with Christ, that we are raised with Christ, our heart is circumcised by Christ, our sins are washed away. All of these things, are if you, if you read in the scriptures in the New Testament about what baptism does, all of that is outside of you and is a gift from God and something that you can turn to in times of doubt. It also is a time that, something you can turn to when in times when you are tempted. Should we sin that grace may abound? May it never be, for don't you know that in your baptisms you were buried with Christ and you were raised with Christ? His assurance is basically based upon the fact that he has some kind of inner light and he's out pre- preaching hate. That proves that he's part of the remnant. But even then, that doesn't really prove it, and all he has is hope. He doesn't know for sure if he's um, if Christ died for him. Hmm. Days. Okay. So what counts in these last days is God's judgment and, and condemnation of this world, and it's coming quickly. And if you knew anything about the Book of Revelation or any other part of the Bible, you'd know that. I. 
fact, I've been reading it lately. Good. Yeah, I know all about the hey. wrath to come, but all you right. don't have any hope that you don't even know for sure if you're going to make it? Hey, uh, I'm not arrogant. I have. I Is it you, arrogant I to say that I Christ died that for all of your sins? It's hopeful. Hopeful? It's a great hope. You have no hope to offer hope. anybody. It's a great hope. So it's all up to you hope. then. And uh, it, uh, God loves those that have a humble and a contrite spirit. Uh, so then it's all on you, basically. Well, God loves those who are humble and have a contrite... Well, are you humble and contrite enough that God loves you? See, that's the thing. you got to wield the law in such a way as to expose sin. Why is this guy flat-footed and kind of caught off guard? Because he's already admitted he's a sinner. You have to have a fear of God. You don't go around, hey, man, i got it made. I'm the elect of God. Uh-huh. So, that's what you're suggesting. No, it wasn't. I'm not going to do that. So so you don't know for do sure. It, guy. So you, you might you might go to hell I've still. You still evidence. might go to hell, and, and God will be just to send you there. I've got evidence. It's his call. It's his decision. I have reason to believe that I'm one of his elect. But you don't know End for sure. End of story. End of story. You don't know for sure. Uh, and you're a I, sinner. I'm not supposed to know for sure. You're, you know what, though? I'm if, not supposed to know for sure. Really? Absolutely. Okay. Even Paul, all the apostles didn't know for sure. They said... This is so tragic. They had a hope. That's and they it. They had a lot more evidence than you and I have. They saw Christ in the flesh after his crucifixion. So you have no hope to offer anybody because you don't even have any hope yourself. Uh, no, I've got a lot of hope to offer. No, I don't have any hope for these folks. That's what you're asking. None. None. Zero. Now you are aware that Jesus no, in, that, in, in Luke 24, hey, hey, Jesus said, this. Hey, hang on a second. Let me ask you this. Do yeah. those people in Sodom have any hope? They were burned to a crisp. From the oldest to the baby sucklings. Burned to a crisp. You call that hope? Well, they had hope as long as they had breath in their lungs until God wiped them out. Yeah, well, there's a little bit of hope, but uh, not not if you're living this lifestyle and supporting it. Yeah, but you're a sinner, too. You say yeah, you sin. Been, I'm not going to keep going over the same path. But you. You don't, you don't, you're not even obedient you. yourself. I'm not going to go over the same path. Go talk to somebody else for a while. You're getting, you're getting old and tired. All right. <laughs> All right, that was interview number one on the street with the Westboro Baptist folks. By the way, I had to actually get permission from the police uh, before I could walk up and interview them. <laughs> and they said, you know what, you can interview them as long as you don't incite a riot. I kid you not, that's what they told me. We continue. Ma'am, you are aware that uh, Jesus Christ was a Jew and your sign says that God hates Jews? All right. Now, the second person is a woman holding a sign saying God hates Jews. And so my question to her, let me back this up. I forgot to give the context. Here we go. So, so here's a woman holding one of her signs says God hates Jews. Ma'am, you are aware that uh, Jesus Christ was a Jew and your sign says that God hates Jews? Yep. Peter was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. John was a Jew. Yeah. Um, Matthew was a Jew. Yeah, they were Jews. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and you named the few who actually obeyed him. Uh, do you obey God? I try. How well do you succeed? Well, I, I read the scriptures every day. I, I learn what his revealed will is uh -huh. to us. But you can't stand in front of my sign. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I was blocking her sign. Notice I wasn't giving her any slack regarding her self-righteousness, and it was very clear she wasn't even very convinced of her own righteousness. Now, was she? Um, and then I go out and I preach his word. But you're saying the, that, they, that the Jews don't standard. obey God, but you yourself are just they trying. They don't. But you you're, you said we're you're trying. You, that means flesh. you really don't. We're human flesh. That means and you're a sinner. We're all sinners. All falls short.
sort of the glory of God. So Very what's your what, what hope do you that. have to offer There's anybody? There's a mystery about that. But see, the thing then is, is that God hates the sin that you commit yourself. Mm -hmm. So how do you know that God doesn't hate you? Because God died for an elect remnant. Or how do you know you're part of that elect remnant? Well, you don't. You have a hope. You have a hope. Oh, man, this is so tragic. Folks, if uh, the Westboro Baptist folks uh, show up in your town, go out there and engage them in this kind of conversation and use God's law to show them their sin. They're sitting there condemning the entire world because the entire world doesn't obey God, yet they themselves don't either. What does that tell you? Because so you have no hope. You have no hope except the hope. You don't know for sure if you're part of that elect remnant. And are you out here trying to hope that maybe God pays attention to you by your protesting that you'll somehow become part of the elect remnant? No, it doesn't work that way. How's it work? It works that you have impulses on your heart, whether you're going to obey or not obey. And obeying means... But we've already established the fact that you only try and that you, that you obviously fail. Look. We have impulses on our heart, and you either obey or don't obey. Well, that's pretty flimsy, and so what did I do? I hit her back with the law. I want to rattle her cage and get her to to stop trusting in her self-righteousness and these so-called internal impulses to obey when she doesn't even do it. It's going to get loud here because uh, obviously there was a lot of people driving by who were... Um, Expressing their um, lack of support for the Westboro folks. Only try by that means. Yeah. That, yes, we all sin. Uh huh. You know what you are is is a um, you're resting the words. I, you're I, resting, twisting. No, I'm just. Yeah, you've you already are. admitted that you're a sinner. You've already admitted that you sin, yet you're out here telling people that Jews don't obey, yet you don't obey. Don't you see the conflict there? No, I didn't say I don't obey. Yeah, you did. You sin. If you sin, you don't obey God. Christ says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you if you sin even once today, you don't. You're not obeying His commandments. Worthy of hell. Exactly. We all are. So what's your what's your What's your position? What's your point? Uh, that what Christ told to us in, in, in uh, Luke What's chapter 24, <laughs> he said to go out and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. I see you out here preaching repentance, but I don't hear nothing about the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is only for those whom he, who, for whose sins he died for. He didn't die for all the sins of mankind. How do you know which of those that? people across the street Christ died for and which he didn't? I don't. But you know what? Well, they, then they shouldn't, you be, shouldn't you be telling them they about the forgiveness read. of sins? They can read. All they you're preaching is hate. All you're preaching is repentance, but there's no forgiveness of sins. Where's the forgiveness of sins in your message? Didn't Christ die for somebody? Look, all I have to do is, is hold up the one standard that God set forth. He said, preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's Luke really? chapter 24, verses 46 through 48. He didn't just say preach repentance. He said repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We've already established that you don't obey God and that you're a sinner too. twisting of the words to try to, to to accomplish what you can see that this is absolutely short-circuiting her meant her brain there no i don't think anybody argues with them this way and, they, and we all need to basically get you guys to preach the full message it's not just that god hates it's also that christ died yeah, and we do have signs that say where's the signs that say christ died for sins well because we don't have one right out here with us that says 
because Christ, look, we're preaching to a, a nation of rebels. You, but you're, we've messages? already established that Do you're you a rebel know? too. Do you know? Um, do you know the message that Jonah preached? Do you know the message? Yeah, he preached yes. repentance to Nineveh. He didn't no, want to go. He got all yeah, mad because didn't. they repented in sackcloth and ashes. Yeah, he did get mad. He got really cheesed off about that. But he didn't go through and preach repentance. He didn't say that your sins are forgiven. That's the message you think is but applicable no, to this day. I'm telling you what Jesus said. It's Luke chapter 24, verses 46. He, said, he opens their mind so they can understand the scriptures, and he says that... You are to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. It's both. Peter does the same thing in, in, in Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost. People are cut to the quick when he accuses them of killing Christ. And he says, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He offers him both repentance and the forgiveness of he, sins. He doesn't offer. Look, he doesn't offer. It's either the... the, 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 the um, you either have imputed to you righteousness. Yeah, but you, you don't know which of those you. people then, based on your theology, which of them Christ died for and which of them didn't. No, but I can tell by what they're doing that Christ didn't die for a single one of them. <sighs> she can tell by what they're doing that Christ didn't die for a single one of them. Breathtakingly awful theology. We continue. Basically telling it is what, what you've said, that you say that you don't know for sure if you're part of the elect and you're hoping that you are, yet you already admitted you're a sinner. So how, I don't understand how you, you don't think, know that these do that, that God doesn't hate you as well. Do you think the people in heaven were sinless? No. Do you think? I think, every, I think Christ came for the sick. He came for the sinful. He didn't come for people who were righteous already. Otherwise, what was the point of his death on the cross? He came, yeah, to fulfill that. Yeah. Fulfill that, um... Man. But see, again, I ask the question, how do you know God doesn't hate you since we've already established the fact that you are a yeah, sinner? And I've told you, I've answered that question. You don't know? I don't know. What kind of hope is that? Well, what kind of, what kind of hope is that is that, you know, I don't have to, I don't, I'm not living a life where... <laughs> Stripped her completely of her self-righteousness. She, she is just scratching and clawing for anything at this point. Really, kind of sadly, not pulling it off either. I'm in total stark darkness and denial about my sin. I know my sin. Yeah, and the thing is, is that what James, the, James the brother of Jesus, says what if you, you break one of the commandments, here, you're guilty of breaking it all. But what you see over here is, I love facts. Okay. Yeah, they're out here because they're basically they're reacting sin. against proud the hate that you're sin. preaching. You're only they're preaching proud. the wrath of God, not just, not also proud. the forgiveness of sins. They are proud of their sin. <sighs> All right, so there you have it. My on-the-street interview with uh, a couple of members of Westboro Baptist Church who were here in Indianapolis today protesting in front of a high school that was going to be pr uh, basically putting on a school play that somehow promoted or endorsed uh, uh, homosexuality. And uh, did law and gospel with them. And uh, what do you think? Would like to get your feedback. In fact, email me, uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com uh, with your feedback on uh, what you heard there. I, it's absolutely tragic. I mean, here they're out proclaiming hate, and they themselves have no assurance of their own salvation or that Christ even died for them. How utterly 
tragic this whole Westboro Baptist thing is. It's time for us Christians to engage these people, law and gospel, and and find a way to get rid of the scourge that is the Westboro Baptist mentality and the Westboro Baptist cult and just distance ourselves from them and maybe God will grant them repentance. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to do our sermon review today, and it's kind of an interesting one. It's from a Catholic priest who preached at Mars Hill. Uh, that's Rob Bell's church in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, this past week, so you're de- definitely not going to want to miss that. If you'd like to email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com is my email address. Or if you'd like to uh, be my friend on Facebook, look me up there. Or... You can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Number two of Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Boy, I tell you, my heart is absolutely broken for those folks from Westboro Baptist. Here they have all this zeal. They've actually turned the wrath of God into an idol of sorts. They have all this zeal, rightfully calling sin, sin, and proclaiming God's wrath against it. But they don't even have any hope. There's no forgiveness of sins, even to the point where they're not even sure if it applies to them, if Christ really died for them. They just hope that maybe he did. Oh, so tragic. Absolutely tragic. Again, we we must 
continue to reach out to the folks at Westboro Baptist Church with the good news of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins offered by him on the cross. Oh, oh, so sad. Anyway, so we must contend with them. We must bring the gospel to them for their own sake. And maybe, just maybe, Christ will grant them repentance so they will quit this nonsense. And they have nothing good to offer the world at all except for God's wrath. Yet God is capable of uh, providing his, his own wrath himself. So we p- preach both law and gospel. I mean, and they don't even do the law right. And the, the gospel, they don't even know if it's for them. What a complete tragedy. These folks are literally enslaved to false doctrine. Oh, anyway. All right, we are up on uh, our sermon review, which means it's time for our sermon review update music. All right, the good, the bad, the ugly. We review them all here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, this one's a little bit different. This is from Rob Bell's church, but it's not Rob Bell preaching. Um, let's see if I can get this guy's name right. It's uh, Father, the Reverend Father Robert Sirico uh, or Sirico or yeah, I'm messing up his name. Regardless of that, this is a an ordained, practicing Catholic priest preaching at a supposedly Protestant. Uh, church congregation. However, you know, remember, uh, Rob Bell is emergent. I know some of you out there that might be news to you, but he really he is. He belong. He totally buys into the emergent eschatology of hope, and he's. Um, I would definitely say he's panentheistic and um, preaches universalism. So maybe it's um, maybe it's not uh, a stretch for him to invite a practicing Roman Catholic priest to preach at Mars Hill. Now, why is this problematic? Well, Roman Catholicism at the Council of Trent anathematized the gospel. The good news that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And they actually preach a religion of of works righteousness. And if you don't achieve perfect sinless righteousness before you die, then you go to purgatory until you burn off the rest of your unrighteousness. It's just like hell. <clears throat> anyway, I so uh, here's uh, Father Sirico from uh, Mars preaching at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, home of uh, Rob Bell. Now, I was warned when I was invited, they said, you know, this is a relaxed group of people, so just chill out. So I did. I'm not wearing a tie. Uh, But he is wearing his clerical collar, just that's kind of the joke. A number of years ago, I was at a big evangelical meeting, thousands of people. My guest had brought me and... Listen carefully to this joke. um, I remember uh, during one of the intermissions, the guest uh, went over to the side and I saw this animated conversation going on with somebody else there. 
And I watched as this went on, and they kind of looked over at me, and they were talking back and forth. And finally, the, the host came back over, and I said, um, anything I need to know about? And uh, he said, well, there's just a guy and just had some questions. And I said, well, what? what? He said, no, nah, I, I don't want to. He said, well, I, I said, what? I'm from Brooklyn. I can take it. He said, well, he asked me if you knew Jesus. I said, he did. I said, go back over and tell him. Not only do I know Jesus, I know his mother, too. And uh, there at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, that particular joke, basically, uh, uh, you know, confessing that he prays to Mary... Um, that he knows uh, Jesus' mother and uh, is willing to introduce him. And tell him I'm willing to make introductions. <laughs> yeah. And this, uh, th- and people were delighted at this joke at Rob Bell's church. Uh, it is really an honor to be here and to speak when I'm out of my own parish. I'm usually out of my own parish speaking on issues of economics and politics and social policy and things like that. So it's really an honor to be invited to come to you today to bring grief to you, <laughs> in effect. That little... Te- uh, he's going to bring grief to us? All right, what are we listening for? How is he using God's word? We're listening for, is he correctly distinguishing between law and gospel? And is he proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution to whatever problem he's bringing up? Let's listen carefully, see what he brings. You know what, though? Here's um, my my money is on this. Being that he's a Catholic priest, we're going to hear more about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion than would normally be heard in probably two or three years' worth of preaching from Rob Bell. That's just me. But again, you have to listen carefully for uh, the definitions here. What does he? What what's he mean by it? And uh, does he have a? What's his doctrine of the atonement per se? We'll we'll continue. Text amongst all of those texts in Matthew's Gospel, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You've heard the phrase, whistling past the graveyard, perhaps? That's one of those phrases that encapsulates a real concrete reality that all of us experience at one time or another, and sometimes more than we would like to admit. What does it say? It reveals something about ourselves, whistling past the graveyard. The graveyard's over there. Okay, you know what? I have, I gotta confess, I've never heard that phrase. You know, I, I understand that, you know, decrepitude is, is rapidly, you know, taking over me, but, uh, in my years on the planet, I have yet to hear that phrase, whistling past the graveyard. If I've heard it, it's never registered. It's just not something that, well, it's just not, something popular with the the crowd I hang with. And we're going to just make believe it's not over there, and we're going to whistle past it. We're going to ignore it. We're whistling so as to distract ourselves from that ponderous, immovable reality that is the backdrop to everything. Hey, got to give him props. Father Sirico here is... Uh, 
telling people about something that is not very popular, at least not in American megachurches, death. Hmm. The end. And if you think about the way in which we whistled past the graveyard every day throughout our lives, that is to say how we avoid the reality of mortality. We're quite inventive in the way we do that and the various ways we do that. You can see it in a person who is obsessed with. I'm not talking about a healthy concern for health and diet, but people who are obsessed with it, for whom it becomes the whole of their lives, so much so that they're healthy, but they're not aware that they're alive anymore. Or people who are addicted to their comfort. Just the other day, in, I live in a community of priests, and our remote control went out. <laughs> great, great tragedy. Especially in a house of men. There's some studies that re reveal that men are really control freaks when it comes to the remote control. So here, the remote control went out, and we were pulling the batteries out to see if it was working and banging it and getting it. It took me five minutes to realize I could get up from the couch and change the television, change the channel. This is amazing. I should have remembered that from years ago. I was my father's remote control. Get up. Robin, change the channel. Put something else on. So we can get addicted to our own comfort. Okay, going to point something out here. Um, Father Sirico here is um, doing the law lawfully. Interesting. Kind of pointing out uh, that we can become addicted to our own creature comforts and saying that that's a problem. Interesting. So far, okay. And then it's not just this health thing. It's not just the comfort thing. All these ways of avoiding the reality of mortality, but we can even do this theologically and in the church. You know, some churches replace a theology of the cross with the smiley face. Valid point. How's he defining the theology of the cross, though? So instead of the center of the Christian faith being the death of Christ... The cross. We have this big smiley face. So everything is happy. Everything is wonderful all the time, everywhere. And if you're not, that's not good. That's another way of whistling past the graveyard in a different sense. And I think even when we go to a funeral parlor, this is amazing. Think about this. Somebody wrote a book called The American Way of Death. Even with a body laid out in front of us, we can avoid it. Oh, she looks so beautiful. Look, she looks so natural. She looks like she's sleeping. Isn't that a way of avoiding it? How many times have you gone to someone who's just lost a loved one and not said a thing about the obvious thing 
that someone has died. We're uncomfortable with death. We're uncomfortable with grief. We're uncomfortable with mourning. We recoil, naturally recoil at death. We fear it. And therefore, so many times we do not mourn ourselves. We do not mourn with others. Because to do that brings the reality of death close to us. Okay, got to point something out here. Um, this would be a perfect spot. Now, I'm not sure where he's going to go with this, but maybe we'll see if he goes there. Death is a consequence of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Yes, we. There, death is a terrible thing. And it visits us all because we are all sinners. We're all guilty before God of sinning and rebelling against him. And uh, the wage we have coming to us is death. Let's see if uh, if that gets brought up. Uh, we're talking about death kind of abstractly at this point and pointing out the fact that uh, we as uh, Americans have a way of kind of pushing death into the background. But nary does it come up in, uh, in our minds. That is a problem because we've sanitized it. And that is painful. And so we leave the big elephant in the middle of the room and we move around it and we ignore its existence. Death seems unnatural to us. And you know what? It is. Right? We've never died. Uh, well. It is unnatural to us, and it presents us with a paradox. You know, a paradox is an apparent contradiction. A paradox... Oh, boy, this is starting to look emergent. Okay, continue. ...is when... You have these two perpendicular lines and you can't understand how they can converge with each other. And our whole life is a paradox because we have this intuition that we were not born to die. We have this intuition that we are from eternity. Not that we personally existed through all eternity, but that there's something about our design that pre-existed us that we were created by intelligence, by reason, to be reasonable, to live lives of purpose and meaning. And what do we do with death? How do we make sense of death in the middle of this? We ask ourselves how this sublime being of infinite dignity that we are, that the human person is, can come to its culmination in death. There's something unnatural to us. <clears throat> um, uh, Father Sirico, um, we, we are familiar with sins, are we not? I mean, I do assume that people still come to you and privately confess their sins to you and that you give them absolution. <clears throat> We're talking about death without talking about sins so far. Uh, I hope he turns the corner here. And this is the paradox that we grapple with. We confront it not just at the culmination of our lives, but we confront it in a multitude of experiences almost every day of our existence. I think, in a sense, our quest for justice is a form of grief. When we see other human beings of infinite dignity, 
unique, unrepeatable, immortal beings with a purpose beyond this world. Notice he's not talking about humanity in such a way that it discusses sin and the fall. Instead, we're talking about people with ultimate dignity. Um, yeah, we were all created in God's image. However, that image is terribly marred, and the suffering that we have in this world is as a result of our sin and rebellion against God. Um, yeah, there's dignity in the fact that we were created in God's image, but that dignity is just absolutely destroyed by our sinful nature and our rebellion against God. It's pretty bleak. And yeah, justice is, in a sense, mourning the fact that other human beings are suffering at the hands of other human beings who are also sinful. Just notice the sin thing is just, it's just not present in this sermon so far. Treated in a way that does not meet their dignity, our response to that injustice is a form of grief. Hopefully we focus and we do something about that. When the immigrant or the stranger is not welcomed into our midst, when a person is respected, disrespected because of their ethnicity, when a child in the first moments or days of its existence can be snuffed out, when we walk past and ignore the aged or the handicapped without even a smile as though they didn't exist. All of these are little ways in which we're whistling past the graveyard on a day-to-day -day basis. These are the little mornings, the little griefs that we seek to avoid in our lives. We mourn, too, the division of the Christian church. Christ in his last high priestly prayer prayed that they may be one. Yeah, but see, the uh, Roman Catholic Church abandoned the Bible and its teachings and abandoned the gospel and anathematized it. Uh, I, I have no problem being united with Roman Catholicism as soon as they repent of their heresy. And yet we are divided. I'm not saying that there are not real points of contention that we have to talk through very charitably. But we need to accept the reality that the division of the Christian community, we who are united by a common baptism and a common faith in Christ. Got to stop for a second. Here's the deal. Um, no, I would not say we are united with Catholicism by a common baptism and a common faith in Christ. Catholicism is a works righteousness religion. It's it's basically a very beautiful form of, of semi-Pelagianism. And um, so, no, I don't have the same faith that they do. I do not believe the same gospel they do. Therefore, I'm not really united with them. Nor am I. Nor can I say that we're united uh, in the same view of the sacraments. <sighs> are divided. And this isn't something that just dates back to the Reformation. This isn't something that dates back even to the Great Schism at the turn of the first millennium. This is something you can read about in the Acts of the Apostles. One says, I'm of Apollos. Another says, I'm of Paul. 
So the division of the church is a scandal and an occasion for great grief. Right, and the solution is is that folks who have abandoned what the Bible clearly teaches would repent of their false doctrine, and we can be united then. And we mourn not only tragedies that we read about or see on the television, but we mourn the tragic, the fact that the tragic exists. Please, uh, Father Sirico, please tell me you're going to actually talk about the tragedy of our sinful rebellion against God. Tragic is not just the evil. It's not just a confrontation with evil. The tragic occurs when we fail to live up to our potential. Fail to live up to... Oh, yeah, that would terribly be tragic. Um, the problem is, is that I'm not somebody who's just failing to live up to my potential. Um, I'm failing to live up to God's standard of righteousness. I'm a sinner. Um, really a wretched one. So I, I don't need to be saved in such a way that somebody's helping, coaching me to achieve my potential. Uh, I need a savior who's going to save me from the wrath of God uh, because of the sin in my life that has earned me nothing less than the wrath of God and eternal hell. Richard III or Macbeth Shakespeare characters weren't just evil. That's not what we recoil from in them. It's that they could have been great. Could have been a contender. Could have been a contender. It's just so tragic. Did you that you want it really? You had. But they failed. They failed in their potential. And of course, the place we most mourn and grieve is in the face of the disability, the illness, and the death of others. Many years ago, when I was in seminary in the early 1980s. Part of our formation as priests, to be priests, wasn't just the theological studies, but the work we had to do with people. And part of that is people in grief and people who are dying. And I was studying at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and I was assigned to go to the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. That's the nation's large research set of institutions, the National Institutes of Health. Not one institute, but there are many, the Institute of Immunology and the various other ones. And I went there, there's a big hospital there, and I met the chaplain, and he talked with a number of seminarians to get to know us and to see who we are, what we were doing, and what, where we wanted to work. And that was about the time that my dad had been diagnosed with a form of bone marrow cancer, which would eventually take him. And so he was dying. He would actually he would die probably that next summer. And when I sat with the chaplain, he said, uh, and where do you want to work? I said, well, my dad is dying. I'd like to work with the dying. He said, oh, that's easy here. I think he'd been a chaplain there too long. See, the research hospital 
has a lot of experimental protocols. People who have very rare diseases or diseases that are untreatable, that they haven't developed treatments for yet, they would come there. Some in very, very difficult circumstances. So he said, okay, well, we'll assign you to pediatric oncology and to AIDS. Now, this is the early 80s, right? AIDS was new. They weren't wearing red ribbons at the Academy Awards in those days. The only people I knew who were working with AIDS patients were Mother Teresa's nuns. So he said, you'll work with AIDS patients. And I said, oh, okay. And I did, really one of the most beneficial periods of my formation. I would make the rounds in the hospital, different people, go in to see them, chat with them, talk to them. And one day I was going back to a room where I had met somebody, and I knocked on the door to go in, and there were a number of uh, physicians and attendants around somebody, so I didn't see the person. I said, is so-and-so here? And they said, no, 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 he's... Uh, he's not here anymore, which was a code. Uh, but the voice from the bed said, is that the, the chaplain? I had identified myself as a chaplain. I said, yes. He said, would you come back when they're done? I said, sure. So I went away and I came back a little later and I knocked on the door again and I began to open the door. He said, come on in. And I walked into the room and I remember the shades were closed. The room was kind of dark. And I moved toward the bed and I remember looking at that bed and the person in it, and at first I, I wasn't sure what I was looking at. And there was a fellow I'll call Charlie, was laying in the bed. From the top of his head to the soles of his feet, every part of his body, including his eyelids, his lips, his mouth, were it looked like he had been passed through an open flame. He was just a series of crinkly blisters oozing. and It was one of the most appalling sights I'd ever seen in my life. Very delicate. He could not move. He had to be very careful. Even when he would drink from a straw, he had to be very careful because he'd leave part of his skin on the straw. It was that bad. This was an experimental drug that went wrong. But he had already had a death sentence, AIDS. So he took the risk. I sat by his bed, and I asked a little bit about him. He, he kind of turned and looked, but mainly I remember the eyes, because he couldn't move too much. I remember he would talk to me looking this way at me. And he told me about himself. He said, you wouldn't believe it to look at me now, but I was once very good looking. A lot of friends, very popular. I said, do your friends come and see you? He said, oh no, they don't know I'm here. I haven't told them. He didn't want to tell them about the disease, and he especially didn't want to tell them or let them see what he looked like now. I said, Charlie, what about family? He said, you know, I was my mom's favorite, but I never got along well with my dad. And as he said that, tear began to come down his cheek. I reached over and pulled the tissue from the box, but I realized he was so delicate I had to be very careful, so I just took the tip of the Kleenex 
and just put it on the tear to absorb it so as not to cause him any more pain. I learned a lot from that young man in his 30s. And I would come back to see him from time to time and we would talk. And one day when I came back to talk to him, he said, sit down, I want to tell you something. Something happened this week. I sat down, I said, what? He said, my dad came to see me. He said, really? How did that go? He said, he just stood by that door and he looked in at me. He couldn't come close to the bed. He just couldn't. And I said, did he say anything? And he said, yeah, that's the wonderful thing. He stood there and he said to me the most beautiful words I've ever heard. He said, Charlie, I love you. That was the whole of the conversation he had with his father, but it was like his father had brought him a bag of gold. I learned from that experience that part of our grief is not just the thought that the time will come when the universe will no longer contain us. Part of our grief is not just the physical pain and limitation that we experience, but a great deal of our pain in terms of our mourning and grief has to do with the isolation we experience. The isolation we create for ourselves or the isolation that we suffer at the hands of others. I'm going to pause for a second. I've got to tell you, listening to that story, very compelling story. Um, obviously, he's not telling us everything that he's ever talked to with this kid. But notice he's talking about what he took away, what he learned from it. I can only hope and pray that that poor young man, Charlie, also heard of the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ offered to him by his death on the cross. You see, the human life is one big litany of suffering. And the longer I live, the more I am convinced that suffering is the norm for humans. It's not the norm when things are going well. And that's why the, in the Christian church, our prayer is, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. The God who forgives us our sins and is there for us in the midst of our suffering He himself suffered at our hands. And suffered the greatest um, pain that we can inflict on a human being in crucifixion. And yet in that suffering, that wasn't mindless, without a purpose suffering. That was suffering that brought us redemption, that accomplished the forgiveness of sins, you know, again, it's not what he's saying. It's not what Pastor or Father 
Sirico is saying, per se, it's, it's kind of what's missing that's really got me scratching my head here. It is in the face of human grief that Christ offers a paradox. Uh, he offers us a paradox? Okay. This text from the Beatitudes is a series, one of a series of paradoxes. Each of the Beatitudes are their own paradox. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a litany of paradoxes, if you think about it. And in this text, Christ places himself right at the center of this human bewilderment in the face of grief and death. This is exactly the opposite of walking past the graveyard. In this small text, Christ says, go into the graveyard. Walk amid the tombs. In fact, Christ is saying, get so close to the tombs that you can smell the formaldehyde from the bodies. Christ walks right into the midst of the paradox. It is the paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. And I cannot imagine that Christ, in saying these words in the Beatitudes, was not keenly aware of his own passion and suffering that he would undergo. Okay, so here we have an, an allusion to Jesus' crucifixion and the cross. This is good. We have a little bit of gospel here. How, does he gonna, how is he going to define this? As he went to Calvary's Mount. You see, the cross is the point of convergence of the paradox and the riddle of human life. The cross is the resolution of the paradox between human dignity, where we are aware of our infinity. What? <clears throat> Can we get a little bit uh, clearer on that, um, at least biblically? where we are aware that we transcend ourselves and everyone is aware of this believer or non-believer any person who loves any person who has been transported by the beauty of music anyone who has seen a work of art or just a marvelous sunset has experienced his or her own self-transcendence we know in those moments the ineffability of human life. How, how is this comforting at all? How is this good news? Um, that there's something beyond the sum total of our material parts. And it is Christ who resolves the paradox between this sense of human dignity and this sense of human tragedy, this sense of human mortality, the reality of death and human suffering. And if you want to see the resolution of this paradox, you have to go to that hill and to look at that cross and to be brave enough 
to look at that cross head on. And in looking at that cross, you'll also notice that on either side of that cross were two representatives of humanity. Those two thieves on either side of the cross of Christ represent the human reaction to grief and suffering, don't they? What? <sighs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm officially getting frustrated here. Got to take a quick time out. Do a little biblical work, if you would. Uh, Beatitudes. Let's see. Matthew chapter 5. Okay. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down with his disciples, and uh, sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, I want to point something out here. You miss the entire point of the Beatitudes. First of all, I am not a fan of somebody preaching uh, basically a sermon series on the Beatitudes and doling these things out one at a time. That's almost a, a guaranteed surefire formula for missing the point. Okay? You cannot understand the Beatitudes unless you understand them through repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Watch. If you, if you have repented of your sins and know of your wretchedness and know that you have nothing to offer God and are sorry and contrite for your sins, then the Beatitudes make sense, especially considering the forgiveness of sins offered by Christ, vicarious death on the cross for our sins. He died in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. We're talking penal substitution here. Here we've got Father uh, Sirico telling us we got to be brave to come and look at the uh, the gore of the cross and, and somehow embrace its paradox and its ineffable, ineffability regarding the uh, uh, whatever. Okay, listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who is the one who is poor in spirit? No, it, it's not talking about poverty here. It's talking about poverty of spirit. Only the person who sees their sinful and wretched condition before a holy God and understands they have nothing to offer God. They come to him completely empty-handed as a result of their sinful wretchedness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You can literally say, the spiritual beggar. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The one who has nothing to offer God is the one who has the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is this because mourning is in and of itself is some great thing that earns us brownie points before God? All of us mourn. Even Hitler mourned when some of his top generals died in the field. 
Was Hitler's mourning somehow earning him comfort? No, the mourning that's being talking about here, again, falls back into that same category. Those who are poor in spirit, spiritual beggars. Want to see what spiritual mourning looks like? Look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. Does that sound like somebody who is poor in spirit? Or somebody who is mourning? No, not at all. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, by the way, the, I, the Greek here is so much better than the English. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the way we translate it. Um, but the uh, the Greek has a far better way of putting it. And um, God, cover me in the blood. He'll, uh, yeah, yeah. That I mean, we're, the 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 Greek verb there is uh, hilaskamai. It's referring to the blood that's being shed in the temple. It's pro, it's it's propitiation of God's wrath via blood sacrifice. So it's like God. Cover me in your blood. I, be merciful by covering me in your blood. I am a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that the tax collector went down to his house justified, declared righteous rather than the other one. So if you want to see what poor in spirit looks like, you want to see what mourning looks like that Jesus is referring to here. It's those who have nothing to offer God, like the tax collector. Those who are mourning their sinfulness, like the tax collector. Blessed are the meek, the, the one who is completely not entering in pride into God's presence, but entering it meek and humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Christ's righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not our own, his righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Again, how can we not offer mercy to other people because of the mercy we've received? Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, I'm not pure in heart. I'm a sinner. So how can I be made pure in heart? Oh, you receive that purity of heart from God as a gift. Christ's righteousness imputed to you as a gift by faith because of his vicarious death for you on the cross, dying in your place. Blessed are the peacemakers. This isn't just talking about people who uh, negotiate peace treaties. Who of us gets to do that? But those of us who declare forgiveness of sins and peace with God on account of what Christ has done for us on the cross, they shall be called sons of God. 
And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not their own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ offered for the sin for humanity. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are completely mysterious, uh, locked up in an in, ineffable in quagmire of, of mystery, if you would, unless you interpret them through repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And I, I'm not hearing um, Father... Sirico doing that, I'm getting the mysterious, I have no idea what you're talking about talk from him. But it sure does sound spiritual. And, you know, he's wearing a clerical collar, which, you know, that means it has to be from God. The one so overwhelmed by his pain, so overwhelmed by his suffering and his grief, becomes bitter and curses at the God whose divinity is obscured by his own pain. And he rebels and he rejects and he mocks. Talking about the, the one, you know, one of the thieves on the, you know, the other crosses. This is his allegorical interpretation of um, them. And the other, also a malefactor. That would be a sinner. Um, guilty. Yes, sinner, guilty of his, yeah, getting what he deserved. calls out in his grief, remember me. It has no theological content. He doesn't give a reason. Christ in his response doesn't say, oh, the problem of evil is resolved by fill in the proposition. The answer to the riddle of evil is an invitation. I don't even know what that means. I will think of the two thieves on the cross, one mocking, the other one saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, who does that guy sound a lot like? Oh, I know, the tax collector at the temple praying, Lord, cover me in your blood, have mercy on me. Sounds like a confession of faith. It sounds like somebody who's poor in spirit mourning over his own sin, meek. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, <clears throat> today you will be with me in paradise sounds a lot like what we heard Jesus say of the tax collector. He left that the temple justified. Dikaio declared or pronounced to be righteous. I don't see that as an invitation. I see it as a declaration. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That day, the, the tax collector left justified. Jesus pronouncing, declaring, today you will be with me in paradise. It wasn't an invitation. It was a declaration. Someone once said that God does not console us by abolishing our solitude, but by entering into it. And the vision of that hill, there on Golgotha's bloody mount, is the answer to the riddle of human existence. 
I agree. Uh, can you uh, give us the right answer to the riddle, though, please? Christ crucified for our sins, pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. There in the crucified Christ, we see one who not only suffers for us. Can you explain that part? He suffers for us. What do you mean by that? And this is what we often forget. But he suffers with us. Claiming themselves to be wise, they become fools. So we're not going to talk about the important thing that happens on the cross. Christ suffering for us, dying for our sins. Instead, it's him suffering with us. Now, granted, there is an aspect to the cross that, that, that that's true. But don't you think that's kind of like missing the big headline? And going for like subhead 56? And preaching that as if it's the big thing. He enters our grief, our solitude, our pain. He enters our grief and solitude. He was pierced for our transgressions. Enters our grief and our solitude. Don't you understand that the solitude he experienced was the God, God the Father turning his back on him because he was carrying on him the muck and sin of the world? I feel like we've missed the point. Isaiah chapter, well, maybe I should go back to 52. Hang on a second here. I'm just doing a little biblical work here. See if we can't slip in a little biblical gospel hint with... Okay, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Hang on a second here. I got to go back just a little farther here. Hang on. Uh, all right. Let's see. 52. I was in 53. Yep. Yeah, signs of decrepitude creeping up on me again here. Okay. Um, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace." Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is the peacemaker. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, declared to be righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. When we talk about Christ's suffering and grief, it's to completely miss the point that somehow he is identifying with our suffering and grief. He suffered as a result of our sin. He was propitiating God's wrath through his vicarious death on the cross for our sins, as Isaiah 53 teaches. Yet Father uh, Sirico, uh, preaching at Mars Hill Bible Church there in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, the home of uh, Rob Bell and his preaching ministry, is somehow kind of missing the the whole big point of uh, Christ's death on the cross. And because the, the one who is suffering so is innocent, he has the capacity to subsume into himself, into his divine person, all of the humanity suffering, all of the history of limitation and death. He can subsume this because his suffering... What? He can subsume our suffering and death? What about propitiating God's wrath because of our sins, pierced for our transgressions? Remember that part from Isaiah that I just read? His cosmic suffering. His suffering. Cosmic suffering. Oh, man. <clears throat> Hang on, i got to cue this up here. Yeah, can you hear the echo? There we go. <clears throat> Adventures in missing the... Point. Yeah, I love doing that. Seriously. Uh, this this is not a theology of the atonement that provides hope. It's just a complete hopelessness. Yeah, big whoop. Who cares? Jesus has experienced cosmic suffering, and he can now identify with us in our suffering. Woo! Yay! I am so glad God can do that. Suffering is redemptive suffering. You can talk about what redemption is, what it means to redeem. I mean, that's slavery talk here. By the way, slavery talk, redemption, that, that is slavery talk. Think of it this way. If you are a slave, you are incapable of freeing yourself. Somebody has to purchase you out of slavery. They need to redeem you. So when Christ redeems us, he's purchasing us out of slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Transaction between the Father and the Son, if you would. His suffering can answer the riddle of human existence because when we look to the cross and to the one on the cross, Christ reveals us to ourselves. What does that sentence mean? Christ reveals us to ourselves. Whew, yeah, that, that's some deep theology of the atonement there. Never saw that one coming because it's not taught in the scriptures. <clears throat> oh, man. 
the uh, the reformers talked about one of the major uh, symptoms of sin. It's this incurvy toss. You're bent in on yourself. That's what this sounds like. It, basically, a sinful view of the atonement. One that's still bent in on ourselves. He revealed uh, Christology is anthropology. What? Christology is anthropology? Uh, no, that would be theology because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Uh, it's so much more than anthropology. That would be the study of man. Anthropology is Christology. The study... <laughs> oh, no, it's not because man is not Christ. Of the human person in his authenticity is the study of Christ. A human person in his authenticity? <clears throat> what does that mean? I'm sorry, but the, hang on a second here. We're going to do a little biblical word search here. We're going to search the Bible for the word authenticity. And uh, make sure we're going to do a word search here. And we're going to search all of the Bible. And, uh, and we're going to look for the word Authent I have no idea what that word means, by the way, but we're going to look for it and see if it's in the um, in the Bible. Here we go. Hit send. There we go. Nope, not in there. Nope. Nowhere in the Bible do we find the word authenticity. Don't know what it means. And the study of Christ is to discover the authenticity of the human person. Now, my friends, what no on one earth does that mean? What on earth? The study of Christ is to discover the authenticity of the human person. What? These are completely empty spiritual platitudes. He's speaking words, but it doesn't mean anything. Before the crucifix, indifferent. No one stands before the crucifix unmoved. We will either rebel and curse, or we will ask to be remembered. The resolution to the paradox is an invitation. No, it was a declaration, just like we are declared to be righteous. Dikaio. Look it up in the Greek there, Father. Um, we are declared to be righteous. Jesus declared him to be righteous and said that that day he would be with him in paradise. It wasn't an invitation. Hey, if you'd like to come today with me to paradise with me, that would be okay with me. But if you don't want to come, that's okay too. No, he declared him to be righteous by saying that he would be with him in paradise. It was a declaration, a dikaio, not a invitation. An invitation to come into union with the one. What? An invitation to come into union with the one. What does that even mean? Whom the scriptures promise will abolish all mourning, all suffering, all outcry, all pain. The former things will be passed away. Behold, all things will become new. And if you and I can go to the cross with that bravery and humility, we will return from the cross with an insight that will enable us 
to comfort others. We're going to the cross for insight on how to comfort others. <sighs> with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. No one stands before the cross indifferent. Each of us must make our response to its invitation. <clears throat> Can you say Pelagianism? Mm-hmm. Look it up there, uh, Father Sirico. Uh, that was just dripping with Pelagius's heresy. <sighs> you don't know what that is? Look it up on the Internet. You need to do some homework. Folks, listen. The cross is a terrible event in human history. Each and every one of us was in the crowd asking for the release of Barabbas, a scoundrel to say the least, and were calling for Christ's crucifixion and saying that his blood should be upon us. And when his blood is upon us, not in the way of guilt, but in the way of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ's propitiation for our sins on the cross, his death, his death, Literally, he was pierced for our transgressions, died on the cross for our sins. If you come to the cross with the idea that you're going to somehow gain spiritual insight and information that you didn't know before so that you can then go and make a difference in the world and somehow have a life of purpose, you've missed the whole point of the cross. When you look at the cross and you see Christ's bloody and beaten body hanging naked, and bruised and beaten. That's you that deserves that. Jesus Christ takes from the, basically drinks the entire wrath of God upon himself for the sins of the whole world. You're the one who put him on the cross. You're the guilty one. You're the man. You're the woman. That's you that should be there. That's what you've earned because of your sinful rebellion and wickedness but like the thief on the cross who was getting what he deserved he can look to Christ there was Jesus dying for his sins right next to him the sins that he was getting the wages for was his death and like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 it's kind of a weak ridiculously feeble Confession, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Doesn't even have the chutzpah to say anything positive about himself. He knows that he's getting what he deserves. And that's what we find out in the other Gospels, is that he says, shut up. We are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't invite him. He declares him to be righteous. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Sins forgiven. I'm bleeding for them right now, right next to you. As we speak together, I am propitiating the wrath of God on your behalf. I am being pierced for your transgressions. The thievery that you, that you committed that puts you on the cross next to me, I'm dying for that. 
That's the good news of the cross. And we find that the thief on the cross next to Jesus, the one who confesses him, is poor in spirit. And he's mourning. He has nothing to offer Christ. He's seeking after righteousness, not of his own, but the righteousness of Christ. See, the Beatitudes come alive when you look at them through the proper understanding of the cross. The proper understanding being repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Look at it in light of Luke chapter 20. I mean, 18, of Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You look at it through that, and the whole thing comes alive. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have nothing to offer God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the tax collect, not the Pharisee who thought he had everything to offer God, and he was pretty much religiously uh, the coolest cat in town. Blessed are those who mourn, like the tax collector, like the thief. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Blessed are those who are meek, like the tax collector, like the thief on the cross. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like the tax collector, like the thief on the cross. You see, when you interpret the Beatitudes in light of that, the whole thing comes alive. Otherwise, it's just a locked-up book, and you speak in basically empty spiritual platitudes, which we heard from Father Sirico, empty spiritual platitudes that miss the forgiveness of sins, that miss the whole point of the atonement, that miss the whole point of what Christ was doing on the cross. Sad and tragic. My prayers go out to the folks over at Mars Hill Bible Church, who are getting a steady diet of false doctrine and are being deceived. And for Father Sirico, that he would repent of his sins and experience the mercy and forgiveness of Christ, one for him on the cross, without strings attached, without purgatory, without praying to Mary and the saints. Stand naked before his Lord, stripped of his self-righteousness and repentant trust in Christ. Well, folks, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. It's important that you partner with us in order for us to continue bringing this program to you. You can partner with us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, www.fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow Donate buttons. That takes you to a webpage where you can securely enter your, your bank credit debit card information and send your gift in instantly, securely, right there online. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Oh, man, interesting, interesting. You know, my heart breaks for the folks at Westboro Baptist. My heart breaks for the folks that are hearing this stuff and think they're being fed the, the biblical gospel, being given good news, and in reality they're not. And they are enslaved to false doctrine and to false teaching and are not hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for them on the cross. Mm. My heart and my prayers go out to them, for them, to our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. Battle tweets, if you would. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.